There's an old trope of warfare with two generals playing chess, pitting their minds against each other with the pieces and pawns as their armies. There's plenty of things wrong with this image. Armies do not always start off evenly matched, and the pieces have lives and minds of their own. Still, the idea of two generals pitting their respective strategies against one another is a resounding found all the time both in historical and fictional narratives alike. Certainly, every general should account for the strategy and capabilities of the other general and the other army. It's not enough just to create a plan for your own army in a vacuum. The enemy general will make plans, and this has to be taken into account with strategic and tactical planning. In military science, one of the best ways to do this is to entice the enemy to make a move that serves friendly interests, or even better, to bait a trap to get the enemy to move to where you want them. To act with what appears to be their own best interest, only for it to lead to their ruin. There are classic examples throughout history. Augustus Octavian, Ottoman Bismarck, these are two legends of the idea. But there's an example of this on the tactical level, with an often overlooked empire in the late medieval era. Near Damascus, in the beginning of the 14th century, during a warm April spring, an Egyptian sultan would go against one of the mightiest war engines in the world, lead them into a trap, and put an end to their territorial ambitions in the Levant. This is the Battle of Mar de Safar. Whenever someone asks about the greatest military engine in history, there's a few standout examples. Alexander's Macedonians are always a popular choice. So is the early gunpowder army of the Ottoman Empire. The Roman legionnaires always find a spot. There's no singular rubric or set of criteria, so plenty of historical armies will compete based on what each individual person likes. One of the most frequent candidates, though, is the army of Genghis Khan from the steppes of Mongolia. In a short span of time, the Mongol army went from a feuding array of nomadic horsemen into a well-oiled military machine. Plenty of historians have dissected the reasons for the Mongols' military supremacy. Certainly, a culture which prized horsemanship, using cavalry as their primary striking arm, will be very effective. A nomadic culture has much experience in foraging on the move, solving logistics concerns that were the bane of pre-modern armies. In many ways, they held concepts that modern armies still hold to today. A meritocratic officer corps, incorporation of conquered knowledge and experts into the regular army, consistent training with a variety of different formations and tactics, regular pay, even if it was just a share of the booty, and consistent standards of discipline enforced from private to general. These concepts are, when viewed through the lens of medieval governance, truly revolutionary, even radical. In 73 years, the Mongols united their own feuding tribes and conquered most of Eurasia, from the White Sea to the Korean Peninsula, the largest contiguous land empire in human history. After the conquest of the Khwarezmid Empire and the Seljuk Sultanate, the Mongol Empire fractured, with the southwest being taken over by Hulagu Khan, his Ilkhanate. The Ilkhanate looked to expand their territory further to the south, into areas controlled by the Abbasid Caliphate. In this, they took the key cities of Baghdad and Damascus, and looked to threaten even further toward Egypt. 
Egypt had been contested territory for generations and party to plenty of conquests throughout history. Egypt itself was central to plenty of caliphates and sultanates after the rise of Islam, but in the 900s it was the capital of Shia Islam, held by the Fatimid Caliphate. The Fatimids lasted two centuries before being conquered by Nur ad-Din and Salah ad-Din, better known as Saladin, and his Ayyubid dynasty. The Ayyubids fell into internal conflict with a prominent member of their military, the Mamluks, who were a mainstay of the Egyptian Sultan. Mamluks were a slave caste, a military caste, with an elevated social position of professional warriors, albeit slaves, granted several notable social privileges in exchange for military service. Other slaves were not allowed to even touch weapons. Many of the Middle Eastern empires depended on a caste of slave soldiers, from the early Abbasid Ghulam to the Ottoman Janissaries. The Mamluks gained significantly in political power during the Ayyubid dynasty, which weakened after the death of Saladin and the splitting of the Ayyubid lands to Egypt and Syria. The death knell came after the Ayyubids lost significant resources from the Mongol conquest of Aleppo, and the Mamluks took over, establishing the Mamluk Sultanate of Cairo. Now, if the Mamluks felt that they owed anything to the Ilkhanate for weakening the Ayyubids in Aleppo, that sentiment was very quickly eroded. Hulagu Khan was interested in taking lands in the Levant and breaking the centers of power in the area. With Damascus and Baghdad fallen, Cairo was the next target. And so the Mongols dispatched envoys with the aim of seizing more territory. Sultan Qutuz refused, executed the emissaries, and sent an army to intercept the Mongol march. Qutuz was successful in fighting the Ilkhanate near Ain Jalut, which translated from Arabic is the Springs of Goliath. There, Qutuz used his light cavalry and feigned retreats to lure the Mongols into an ambush, demonstrating his skill as a general. That victory would not last. Qutuz would be assassinated by his subordinate Baybars on the march back to Egypt. The loss made the Ilkhanate gains in Syria untenable, and they retreated from Aleppo and Damascus and used the Euphrates River as their border. This was a watershed moment for the Mongols and their conquests. The Mongols had lost critical engagements before, even had to withdraw, but the size and scope of their empire had always allowed them to return with a stronger army to avenge the humiliation and continue the trend of Mongol inevitability. The Mongols were not invincible and could indeed be defeated, but they could return time and time again with a stronger force, making submission the only viable solution to dealing with the Mongols. This response force would avenge the loss of Mongol honor and prestige. After Ain Jalut, though, the fracturing and infighting of the Mongol Empire, the sheer territorial expanse, this was the end of the line. The Mongols simply didn't have the resources to keep expanding further. They could not return to strike Baybars and try their luck on the field against the Mamluks again. This gave the Mamluks 40 years of reprieve from Mongol invasion, allowing them to focus on conquering the remnant crusader states and securing their own territory while the Mongol Empire continued to fracture, given its size and lack of a clear successor to the position of Great Khan. In the last decades of the 13th century, the Ilkhanate decided to try their luck again against the Mamluks and sent a force to conquer Syria. By 1300, the Ilkhanate took Aleppo and Damascus again, crushing the Mamluks near Homs at the Battle of 
Wadi al-Hazandar, which is the Al-Hazandar Valley, translated from Arabic. The Mongols used their vastly superior numbers before withdrawing from the area due to their troops being needed to repel an attack from the Chagatai Khanate. In 1303, the Ilkhanate settled their affairs and looked to finally conquer the Levant again, this time for good. Damascus, who was administered locally by Baybars II, sent a message to Cairo for the Mamluk Sultan, al-Nasir Muhammad, to support them in the field. The Sultan responded with a relief army that marched near Damascus before it could fall into the hands of Ilkhanate. The two armies set a pitched battle on the plains of Marj el-Safar, where the flat lands were conducive to the cavalry warfare favored by both armies, and there was plentiful grazing and water supplies thanks to fresh water supplied by the Alawaj and Aram rivers. The Ilkhanate had the advantage. They outnumbered the Mamluks rather commandingly, but the Mamluk Sultan was not about to risk losing his valuable Syrian territory to the foreign invader. After all, the loss of Syria had led to the deposition of the Ayyubids before the Mamluks. Al-Nasser Muhammad was intelligent enough to know what happened if he didn't demonstrate strength. He himself had been deposed from his sultanate once before, and he had been defeated by the Ilkhanate before at the Battle of Wadi al-Hazandar. Failure was an unacceptable condition for the Mamluks and for the sultan personally. The Mamluks had their origins in a military caste, and one of the chief early reforms of Baybars I, when he took over at Ain Jalut, was a military hierarchy that could make clear organizational sense required for these new modern armies. Baybars propped up a royal corps of Mamluks for use by the Sultan, established clear ranks for his emirs, and outlined military obligations based on the size of their ikta, which is a division of land with some rough parallels to the European fiefs of feudalism. He championed martial tournaments in order to incentivize excellence, and enacted regular inspections of troops for unit fitness and preparedness. These inspections were serious business. Every member had to be on display so that people could not borrow equipment from each other. Failure to report was a serious offense. Al-Nasr Muhammad even hanged five men who weren't present in the Hippodrome in front of everyone as they were drilling to show that failure to report for an inspection would not be tolerated. Every lieutenant under the command of the Sultan knew their position in the army and was equipped with monies paid out of the royal treasury to help enforce standards of simple uniformity. While a lot of this sounds like common sense reforms, they bear a lot of similarities to the Marian reforms of the Roman Republic, and both reformations drastically improved the fighting power of those armies. No longer were the Mongols the only ones with an organized administrative corps to match their soldiers. The Mamluks established a central organizational system to help put their armies in top fighting form and keep them there. The Mamluk soldiers were primarily light infantry and medium-weight cavalry, with the latter being the pride of the Mamluk forces. These royal Mamluks were well equipped with lance, shield, and curved sword, and often had armor and barding to protect them and their mounts. These troops were under the direct command of the Sultan, and the most highly skilled and favored troops of the Mamluk Empire. The emirs also fielded elite heavy cavalry from their personal retinues along with light infantry, equipped with bows, spears, and shields. These cavalry fought similarly to other armored cavalry, 
using mass and speed as a way to disrupt enemy formations. They were shock troops, as opposed to light cavalry, which were primarily scouts, skirmishers, and support. The light infantry was a mix of men with melee weapons, shield bearers, and bowmen to build a line to pin any enemy infantry down. The Ilkhanate forces fought in the Mongol tradition, so they were primarily light cavalry using lamellar armor with auxiliary infantry, sometimes even moved on horseback so they could fight dismounted. Unlike the Mongol Empire proper, though, the Ilkhanate did not have many heavy lancers who were usually employed by the Mongols. This was due for the hotter climate of southwestern Asia and the smaller steppe horses. The cavalry primarily fought with mounted archery tactics, though this did not mean that they lacked melee weapons at all. Plenty of Mongols would use strap and lamellar armor and carry lances, swords, or axes, though the primary means of combat in the Ilkhanate was the famous steppe tactics that had carried the Mongols across the world. The only exception were the royal guard. They were highly trained to fight in both mounted archery and mounted melee in order to protect the Khan. But for the most part, the Ilkhanate fought with mounted archery using small steppe ponies, with their auxiliary infantry used primarily for attacking cities and negotiating difficult terrain. The battle began when the Ilkhan commander, Kutlug, noticed his commanding numerical superiority and ordered an attack on the Mamluk right with a strong force of 10,000 soldiers. The Mamluk troops had far fewer men on that flank and were under strong pressure from the start of the battle, barely able to keep their formation together. To counter, Al-Nasir sent out his two emirs, Baybars II and Salar, and pushed forward with the left and center troops to attack the Mongol wings and peel off some of the attacking Mongols to support their own forces. This is a rather common tactical maneuver, using a wing or reserve not to shore up a flagging flank under assault, but rather to engage another segment of the attacking army in an attempt to stall out the initial advance. This is often done if the reserve is too far away, or if the general believes that sending more men will not arrest the advance of the enemy general, or, like now, when the defender is outnumbered. The timing of this move is critical. Too late, and the flank falls anyway. Too early, and the salient could become engulfed when the attacker pulls back their assault and simply swallows up the relief force. Things were going poorly for the Mamluks, but then an opportunity emerged. To better survey the course of battle, Kutlug moved his general's camp to a nearby hill so that he could observe the battle and direct his troops personally. In Mamluk sources, this is often portrayed as vainglory, the desire of the general to better witness the breaking of the Mamluk line and savor the vicarious glory. This isn't to say that this notion didn't factor into Kutluk's decision at all, but there is a key element that may have contributed to this move as well. Communication. Communication in pre-modern armies is far more difficult than might be imagined. This is a concept that modern students of warfare have a lot of difficulty conceiving thanks to a modern communications network that we enjoy and even take for granted. Pre-modern communications used a complicated array of preset flags, horns, drums, and other signals to convey simple maneuvers. Complex orders need to be written and delivered using runners to deliver the message. Couple that with the shock and chaos of combat, and it's entirely possible for orders to not be heard or seen, completely ruining a battle plan simply because the orders were not able to be received. 
There are no radios, there are no sat phones to deliver orders on the fly, making Kutlug's movement not simply a desire to witness the glorious defeat of his foe, but a move to better supervise a critical engagement that could determine the fate of the battle. Kutluk was depending on breaking the Mamluk line and causing a rout. In battle, most of the casualties were sustained in the pursuit after the lines broke. The Mongols and the Yohanate, with their light, quick horses, excelled at the pursuit of a fleeing foe. They would cause significant casualties in this pursuit phase of warfare. Inflicting serious casualties could break Mamluk hegemony over the Levant and might even undermine their unity at home. Domestic unrest would distract any Mamluk commander not present for battle, making Damascus easy pickings for the invading Ilkhan army. Making a tactical decision during a conflict in reaction to emerging battlefield circumstances happens in every major engagement throughout history. No battle ever goes exactly the way a general will predict and one of the great difficulties of generalship is identifying where, when, and how things are not going according to plan and making adjustments to handle the new circumstances as they arise. Battles can hinge on these small decisions, and battle plans can collapse in the span of heartbeats, from minor maneuvers all the way up to grand and sweeping offensive plans like the ones in the First World War. The Mamluks noticed Kutluk's move as well. The general's pavilion was there, atop a nearby hill, rather than further behind the Ilkhan lines. New orders were given to the Mamluk left and center to storm the hill and attack Kutlug directly. The ferocity of the Mamluk attack alarmed the Ilkhans, who were forced to defend the hill, losing much of the mobility for their mounted archers, permitting the Mamluks to inflict heavy casualties. This move preserved the morale of the battered right flank, and kept the army united into a single cohesive whole. However, both armies were feeling the pressure of the sustained attack as the day drew to a close. Night attacks are possible in pre-modern warfare, but they are incredibly complicated affairs. Without the ability to communicate via drums and torches, since that would tip off the enemy, entire armies can get swallowed up in the blackness of night. Even worse for the Ohanate, Mounted archery was an incredibly difficult technique to engage after the sun had gone down. It was next to impossible to hit a target in the dark or to lure an enemy into a rash charge with a feigned retreat in the dead of night. But that did not mean that the armies were idle during the night. Often during the night, the wounded would tend to their injuries, the soldiers would reform their lines, eat, and prepare themselves for the next day's battle. Al-Nasr Muhammad, though, had a plan. The Ilhan armies outnumbered him. He could not afford to fight via attrition. He needed to get the Ilhan armies vulnerable. So he reformed his lines to allow the Ilhan armies passage to the Aram River, where fresh reinforcements and plentiful water supplies awaited the thirsty and tired Ilhan soldiers. This seems like a drastic mistake for the Mamluk armies. In desert combat, water resources are life and death. To permit the parched Ilhan soldiers to restock their water supplies almost seemed to be a critical blunder, even if reinforcements were not present for the Ilhans to bolster their forces. Yet this move did permit al-Nasr Muhammad one key advantage. He knew what Kutlug was going to do next. Thirsty soldiers moving to get water are difficult to stop, and when they move, they often get out of rank 
as they jostle to drink and gather water for their wounded comrades. This all-too-natural motivation meant the Ilhan armies moved out of proper order to the Wadi Aram, at which point al-Nasr Muhammad ordered a furious charge with all cavalry to the rear of the Ilhan armies, surprising Kutlug's army completely, who believed that the Mamluks would not attack a numerically superior army and would take the opportunity to gather resources, prepare defenses, and otherwise ready themselves for the next day of the Ilhan charge. The shock and confusion of the unexpected attack shattered the Ilhan lines and made a countercharge impossible. From the early morning until noon, the Mamluks charged with every soldier they could muster in an attempt to pile on the pressure and make the Ilhan armies lose heart before the tired Mamluks could no longer sustain their assault. To al-Nasr Muhammad's credit, his preparations paid off, and the Ilhan armies broke around midday, fleeing as far as they could. The Mamluk armies pursued the fleeing Ilhans all the way back to Karyatain near Homs, very close to the site of the Al-Hazandar victory that had been won against the Mamluks the years prior. The victory was decisive. The Ilhan army had been broken, and the resources needed to launch another campaign against the Mamluks were not present thanks to repeated conflicts with the Chagatai Khanate. Al-Nasr Muhammad returned to Cairo in triumph at the head of a great victory procession of prisoners. Singers and dancers were summoned from across the Sultanate to come to Cairo and join in this wonderful celebration. This victory came at a key era in military history, the erosion of the fortunes of the Mongol Empire. The successor Khanates would last centuries past this era, the Ilkhanate would no longer have the ability to credibly threaten the Mamluk Sultanate. The Mongols had created a powerful military engine, and in response, other states evolved to counter Mongol warfare. Eastern Europe would create an imposing network of stone castles that the Mongols could not defeat. Java and Japan would break up Mongol landing forces before they could establish a strong beachhead, and the Mamluks would use decisive defeats against a nation lacking strategic depth to absorb the losses that the Mongols had in previous generations. All of this was done with a deliberate arrangement into a less satisfactory formation, baiting Kutlug to march to an apparently advantageous position simply by opening the path forward and stating, Your move. When Kutlug followed, the Mamluks capitalized with their knowledge. In a sudden, unexpected move. As Sun Tzu said, by holding out advantages to him, he can cause the enemy to approach of his own accord and march swiftly to places you are not expected. While it is unlikely that al-Nasr Muhammad read the art of war, these concepts were conclusions and realizations of warfare that al-Nasr Muhammad understood well and applied quickly during the course of the battle. It was a picture-perfect tactical adjustment used by excellent commanders who understand the battlefield and what must be done to achieve victory. Just as planned, the Sultan led the Ilhan forces to water and let them take a drink. Thanks for listening.